Hello, everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of the James Tea Podcast, where you spill the jam and spill the tea. And now we are coming at you with a brand new episode where we talk about the world and goings on of music, media, and art. And also, just in case you missed it, this week on the channel, we had our two new reviews go up where we talk about the new album from 100 Gex, all 100 of them. 10,000 Gex. I That's don't know right. what the exchange rate is on them, but there are many. We're also they, they, they should have called the it they, they should have called it over 9,000 Gex. I would should that, they have that would have been a fitting reference. This is uh, fuck it, fuck it. I didn't say that. Move on. This is this, this is maybe the most embarrassed I think I've ever been. But we uh, also reviewed yeah, the um, new album from Eve's Tumor, something about God. You should really do something <laughs> about that tumor. Praise a God who chews but does not swallow, or simply hot between worlds. No, I did not read, I just remembered. Well, you still got it wrong. Eat my ass. It can't, it can't be a Jake album read if he doesn't kind of flub it at least a little. No, exactly. And our main convict of nice discussion of fried. And of course, this being a now episode, our main topic of discussion today coming later in the video is going to be the inverse of what we discussed last week. In last week's now episode, we discussed our favorite albums that are two hours or longer, the big boys. And this time we're shouting out the short kings albums that are 30 minutes or shorter. Exactly. Don't, don't don't call it don't. <laughs> And before we get to our main discussion today, though, we're going to talk about what is new in the world of music and, of course, what we have been listening to as well. Some exciting goings, some exciting goings on in the world. Shut the fuck up. In the world well, of music. I, you, you said it, not me. So or the tried to say something. And I'm going to keep going like we, we, we're, we're doing it live. Fuck it. Um, some exciting below riley reference for you all um, yeah i got it i'm with uh, you just for the people at home in case trying not yeah. to cry uh, <laughs> the first thing that happened this week that or the most notable thing that happened this week i think for our interests the very um, first thing that happened during the whole week <laughs> monday no this happened more recently than that the thing that is most relevant to myself and jake's interests and that i think made the most splash in our circles in terms of music fandom was that none other than Miss Joanna Newsom herself performed a surprise concert. Uh, I don't think it's, it's probably her first show in several years. I can't think of the last time she toured. I don't have that information off of the dome, but it was a big deal. It was very unexpected as well, because what happened with it was that it was in the context of a Fleet Foxes show that was promoted as Fleet Foxes with special guests. And so if you're not a member of this community, I'm going to need you to take a second to now imagine the, the community of Fleet Foxes and Joanna Newsom uh, lovers, very communities with very heavy overlap, right? So when Fleet Foxes announced the show with a, with a mystery special guest, there were speculations in the air that this might be Miss Newsom herself. And even those who predicted that couldn't have predicted what Miss Newsom would do, which is perform a set of all new material, primarily at the piano. Of course, she's played the piano before, but she's not typically known 
for basing her songs around that structure, at least in the album format. She's typically known for her amazing harp contributions and her beautiful orchestral arrangements. But she played some piano songs. Apparently, there was a 15-minute song about a canary in a coal mine, which sounds like the most Joanna Newsom thing I've ever sounds- heard exactly on brand um so it was all new material as well and my favorite detail from this entire thing is that robin picknold introduced her as the high priestess of acoustic music i don't know why i said acoustic i'm just gonna fuck everything up today i think that's gonna be my thing but that's how we introduced i'm into it the high the high priest joanna newsome so she played new music, which gives a lot of speculation that we might be getting a new album from Miss Newsom as well. She is one of those figures like Fiona Apple, who puts out an album maybe once or twice a decade, if you're lucky, disappears into the ether, lives, lives a very private life, being married to Andy Samberg, and then comes back. Truly music. music's greatest di- power couple. I mean, we always make you know, pop star equal rights references. So it's just amazing to be, to just remain cognizant in those moments that the person I need them to feature on each other's work. The woman who wrote Yeast. Crazy, crazy shit. But yeah, anyway, she might be coming through with a new record this year. It would be her first since 2015's Divers as well, which is an album I know Jake is going to talk about later on in this episode. So stick around for that. Really exciting. Hopefully we do get a new record for her, from her this year because we're very much overdue. And uh, be really exciting to have a reason to talk more about her back catalogue as well and about what an amazing uh, figure she is. Another news item this week that really caught my eye that I found to be really interesting is that none other than Mr. Cameron Crowe himself of almost famous fame and a number of other films in this in the time since that bear less need repeating has announced that he has been working over the last several years with none other than with none other than Joni Mitchell herself on a film about her life. Now, this is not <laughs> is going that to, all? This, this is not going to be a biopic. This is not going to be a fictionalized thing. Apparently it is primarily autobiographical, but it is the rare instance of a film about a musical legend and their life that is essentially being created in collaboration with that person while they're still alive. And there's upsides and downsides to that as well. You very much risk, you know, veering into hey geography territory. But I trust someone like Joni if, to be if it's Joni Mitchell, it. then you know, maybe she deserves a little hey geography. She can yeah. have a little as a treat. For sure. I mean, she's a legend. So I'm really excited to see. Pretend that I know what that word means. I'm. I was gonna literally explain it to you, but then I realized that might be the most insufferable thing in the world if I actually did that. So, <laughs> uh, I'm just gonna let you not know. Uh, Google exists. I'll just. Oh yeah, I'll Google it if I feel that strongly. Yeah, which you don't. Anyway, so Joni Mitchell and Cameron Crowe working together on this film about her life. Really exciting. I uh, don't know much more about it than that and the fact that it has been ongoing uh, behind the scenes for a while. Uh, as far as we know, it's not really in pre-production or or casting or any, anything like that yet, although it would be very interesting to see uh, who is cast in the film of Joni Mitchell's life. One Stereo Gum commenter recommended that Adam Driver play Jacob Pistorius, which is a, a piece of casting that would be so amazing, I think, that the that I would implode uh, if that happened. There was some like fan cast, like I remember seeing something last year that someone was like, 
there was a specific actress somebody was talking about like this they should totally play a young Joni Mitchell because they look like her and I can't remember who it was for the life of me and it's really bothering me Mm. yeah I would say like I don't know I can't really think of anyone (laughs) I don't know why but my brain my brain said Elizabeth Debicki but she doesn't really she's a little bit too like you know uh Victorian looking to play um Joni Mitchell just put in that Joni Mitchell six foot two well I mean you know there's special effects just put in (laughs) that's true CGI her legs in half. How that would be used? Um, you know, you don't okay, think it doesn't matter. I mean, put in... like, the, 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 the the fucking hobbits were played by real sized people. <laughs> New Zealander moment. It was fucking hobbits. It was just perspective that made them look small. The, um, the person I remembered, I looked it up. The person they were talking about was uh of iCarly fame Jeanette McCurdy who honestly really does look like a young Joni Mitchell so if that happens look, sure I who, someone who has also firmly and resoundingly said I'm never going to act again yeah I was yeah, say yeah. and also I, I mean much respect to her maybe she could pull it out I have not seen no evidence that Jeanette McCurdy of iCarly would have the chops to to play a young Joni Mitchell. Hey, but... look, look. Austin Butler was nominated for an Oscar. Anything is possible. That's true. That's a very good counterpoint. I'm, I'm thoroughly, I'm thoroughly shut down, shutting your butt down. Um, <laughs> I was oh. gonna say when we were talking about casting Joni Mitchell, just put in that Tarantino clip that's been going around. He's like Kate Blanchett. It'll probably be like I don't know who's <laughs> who's who's in everything now. Mia Goth. Bleach blonde, bleach dye her hair. I can think of worse. And be, um, and be Journey. I think I literally just did the kombucha girl face. Let us know at home if you have an idea who you think should be cast as Journey Mitchell in Cameron Crowe's film of her life, because we're fucking floundering here. Another piece of of cool, exciting news is that uh, legendary not Radiohead band, The Smile are recording their new album and not only are they recording their new album they they their new album they have been doing that for seven weeks straight uh tom york revealed Ooh. in an interview this week uh they're they're in the trenches with this new album they're completely consumed i don't know whether we probably won't get it this year maybe early next year but the fact that problem that things are moving as quickly and I guess slowly as they are at the same time with new smile music is really promising as well. Uh, Another piece of news this week, that's kind of something we've already talked about because it relates to a project that we already reviewed uh, several weeks ago, actually, because it appeared online in a non-official form, but now it's been officially released is the new live Mm. album from black country, new road as well, live at Bush hall. Uh, We don't need to go over it again because we, Jake and I did review it. Uh, re not thoroughly but reasonably well and we were both pretty positive about it but i wanted to bring it up again as well because i found out through the grapevine as well again i couldn't find the direct source for this that apparently the band have no intention of recording any of the material on that album or studio versions so essentially that is the i, new I speculated that and we were both like nah they'll probably put it on there and then yeah uh, well i mean you so right. i guess App- apparently the reason they're putting so much pomp and circumstance around this live album release is that they don't want to re-record any of these songs they this so that is essentially the new black country new road album 
Um, and I, we, again, we both really enjoyed but it. Hey, it's when great. When it appeared, I'm going to keep adding it into my rotation. I was kind of deliberately avoiding listening to it too much because I didn't want to get attached to these versions. Um, but if they are going to yeah. be the final versions, then oh, fuck it. I might, I might have to start thinking about where it's going to rank on my albums uh, list for this year because mm-hmm. it is really, really good. What else? Um, <laughs> this is not, I'm probably not going to keep this in the video, but uh, I, I every week there's like fluff pieces that I... I just I I really adore, but they're more interesting as headlines than they are discussion topics. But uh, this week, Rick Ross was in the news uh, very briefly for because his his neighbors are complaining about his buffaloes uh, roaming their fields. Uh, <laughs> <you> fucking. <laughs> That's not buffaloes, Bro. dog. That's just Rick Ross. the great thing about this is that um in the in the stereogum news article that that i read about this in there's like a selfie that rick ross took with his buffaloes that just really ties the whole thing together uh he's incredibly fond of his buffaloes in fact according to stereogum rick ross's buffaloes are becoming a problem for the town of fayetteville georgia uh, where the rapper lives on a massive compound that includes his home for his buffaloes um <laughs> that implies the buffaloes have a mansion, which is not what I'm suggesting for a second. Uh, but they are certainly buffaloes that have a lot of space to roam, hence the complaints. And Rick Ross responded to these complaints and to these allegations in a recent Instagram video captioned, How did my buffaloes get out? <laughs> uh, where I, I really just want to envision that Rick Ross's Denzel Curry feature specifically paid for at least one buffalo oh undeniably a uh, rich rick ross to me even though he has like very little like cultural standing in terms of like work as an actual artist is like an immaculate part of the the fabric of our pop culture landscape and seems to be someone with literally limitless money uh and god knows where it all comes from i mean he certainly was big in the sort of late 2000s it's just kanye it's just my beautiful dark twisted fantasy the royalties just keep coming looking at my bitch i bet she give your ass a bone that that has paid for (laughs) his his whole all of his buffaloes so Um, true king yeah i mean legit one of my favorite verses on that album but neither here nor there uh rick ross has addressed the complaints about his buffaloes in an Instagram video captioned, How Did My Buffaloes Get Out?, where he assured his neighbors, I always return stray animals. Make sure you always keep a collar on your animal. Mine don't have a collar because, you know, it's mine. So when you see my buffalo, give it a carrot, give it an apple. They so kind, they so peaceful. Thank you, everybody, for watching, and thank you for making sure my animals get back to the promised land. And then in the footnote, Stereo Gum clarifies the promised land is what he calls his ranch. So <laughs> I could infer Stereo Gum. Well, no, because there was an ambiguity <laughs> there that the promised land, he might be suggesting that he hopes his, his buffaloes are euthanized, which he certainly doesn't. And he concludes his statement by <laughs> I mean, saying, I mean, like, <laughs> uh, anyway. he concludes his statement by saying, all my neighbors, you the best. Um, oh, look, this is not news, but it's fun, right? I mean, <laughs> really we, isn't. You've got you've to have something to, to just laugh at. I mean, this year is already... My life us... is better for having heard it. I'm not and disagreeing. This year has already given us, you know, the already basically 
iconic interview caption or quote where Rick Ross talked about refusing to drive a Tesla because it might self-drive him to the police. And um, <laughs> which, yeah, and, I don't. And, which and that particular interview quote as well gave us the immortal line. Legitimately, this might be the funniest thing anyone has ever said. Uh, it gave us the immortal line from Rick. I've always had in the back of my mind, the government could tap into the brain of a car. I would like to talk to his dealer. Um, he also in that same interview speculated that upon attempting to enjoy a blunt the vehicle might suck all of the smoke out of its cab um, which is a legitimate concern (laughs) Teslas I mean we can take it from Rick Ross Teslas are fucking garbage for hotboxing cannot do that shit in a Tesla (laughs) not to mention as well my, my, I think this was my favorite. It wasn't the funniest like news item, but I, I still remember the video he posted back in November when uh, he, he posted a video of his mansion. And in the video, he's just got like shit everywhere. I mean, you cannot see the floor because there's like clothes and and just shit everywhere, which prompted accusations towards Rick that he was a hoarder. Um, and he very much had to respond uh, negatively towards this uh, quote I'm trying to organize some of my shit man I got this shit spilling out every goddamn way should Rose have a damn yard sale this ain't no hoarder this rich boss <laughs> shit going on so that cleared that up which was great uh, to have is having 150 plus automobiles hoarding? How many watches is hoarding of watches? How many timepieces would you consider hoarding? With increasing volume and intensity, he gestures towards his staircase and declares, that's when it's hoarding. It's when it's going all the way up the steps and it's blocking functional space. Until then, I'm just a fucking hustler. It's, Love him. That's actually, that's actually so dope. Yeah, he's he's legitimately I, a living legend, and and if you're not what? if you're not following his Instagram, you are missing out a part of a joyful part of life. Like all great rappers, uh, he follows in the stead of having a very austere name, which is William Leonard Roberts the second. I mean, I'm already going to take objection to the great rapper assertion. Uh, he, <laughs> he is he's a good rapper. Yeah, he is a great personality. And I'm the world is better for having him. Yes. But yeah, take care of your fucking buffaloes, man. Moving on. We had a announcement from Swans as well that their new album is coming in June. Uh, yep. The Bigger. Uh, the, the long way to follow up to 2019's Leaving Meaning as well as a return. Very fittingly, given last week's discussion on the Now episode, a return to two hour long album lengths as well, uh, including a 44 so minute ready. song. Uh, which, you know, it feels like mm. there's some level of obligation on every two-hour-long Swans album. With each two-hour-long Swans album they put out, the longest song gets even longer. Actually, I think that's not true of The Glowing yeah. Man. But, you you but gotta anyway. have your The Apostate. Well, yeah, or your um, Bring the Sun! Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so he's 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 he saw Richard Daw- I keep calling him Richard, not Richard Dawkins, he saw Richard Dawson's album from the end of last uh, year with the hermit and said 
bitch test me and he and he's coming with a 44 minute track it's also the penultimate track of the album as well so it's going to be some hype shit i'm sure uh new single enough you said the same thing about morgan wallen (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean i would respect morgan wallen more if his two-hour album had a 44 minute song as opposed to just two minute diet pepsi bullshit the whole way through but whatever um the new was a new yeah. sing- there was a new single uh that came out called Paradise is Mine very mournful and slow dirge for 9 minutes half of the course for Swans it seems like this album might generally be a bit less heavier than what we expect and a bit more kind of like you know shrouded in misery misanthropy and a fear of death or an embrace of death even considering some of the lyrics on this new song uh and song titles like Los Angeles City of Death no more of this and michael is done which you know, <laughs> which is just you know you know that's no more michael yeah there's also a song in here called ebbing which i'm guessing is not referring to the place in missouri from the michael mcdonough film um but rather the uh, wrong donna what did i say michael is that a person <laughs> Martin McDonough. Who's so. Michael McDonough? I feel like I wouldn't have said that if that what wasn't you, a. What the hell are you guys talking about? What was the <laughs> John Michael McDonough? Oh no, he's he's his brother. But they did John... Calvary. Yeah. yeah. Whatever. But yeah, Michael McDonough is also an Irish boxer who's famous for murdering his wife. So that happened. All right, moving on then. Let's get into. A brief conversation about what we have been listening to in the last week. Jake, what have you been listening to recently that you want to shout out on the show today? Well, a lot of it has been preparing for uh, this sort of segment in many respects. So I listen to a lot of very short albums. Um, and one of what, like, I wanted to have a, like, grindcore album just because that's, like, a perfect, like, a, a quintessential sub 30 minute album, like, type. And I was going to originally include the Wormrot album that was before the one that we covered, uh, Voices, um, which is a far less eclectic album, but a, a bit more of a, like, a straightforward kind of grindcore release, which was super good. But I ended up just sort of binging a bunch of other uh, records that I had sort of wanted to get to. Uh, Jacob Sanchez, when we were on the the Warm Rot album last year, said that the heaviest album he had ever heard was a grindcore album by the band Discordance Access, uh, The Inalienable Dreamless, um, which best review I can give for this album is ow, ow. This album's fucking heavy and it's produced to the point where you need to like turn it up a little bit to properly hear everything. Also, it's a concept album that is apparently about Neon Genesis Evangelion. Uh, if you look at some of the song titles, this actually clues you into this, but um, I, I, interesting. Like one of the gayest things you can do is make a grindcore album about Neon Genesis Evangelion. Like just... I mean- cut to the chase and and have unprotected anal sex and save us all some time not really i'm 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 not i don't say things good keep going well if if you're a bit frustrated i could recommend listening to this album because it'll certainly beat the fuck out of you 
it's certainly in the upper echelon of heavy albums that I've heard. I, I still have yet to hear something that tops Devin Townsend and Strapping Young Lads uh, Alien in terms of what I would consider the heaviest metal album I've ever listened to. So jury's still out on that. I also listened to the highest rated album from Insect Warfare, uh, their album World Extermination, which was pretty fucking badass uh just good time uh, overall if if you are having uh, a frustrating time you need to listen to some aggro music i highly recommend getting into the world of very acclaimed grindcore because it'll get it out of you and it'll get it out of you quick uh the the it, it may be a, a strange and alienating uh genre but at the same time i've grown to really appreciate that sort of the the idiosyncrasies and sort of just sort of rules that that music abides by. It, it takes a bit of getting used to and, you know, a lot of one minute long songs that don't really have a whole lot of structure to them, but it becomes its own world of appeal. So uh highly recommend those. Honestly, I enjoyed pretty much all of them. In other news, I got around to is terrified by the dismemberment plan, which is maybe the funniest album I've ever heard. So strange to go from like the high concept, futuristic science fiction blended with modernity of emergency and I to the soul crushing depression of change. And then you go to the anxious George Carlin stand-up of this album, which is just consistently very entertaining. This is this is just a very consistently enjoyable record. And there's a lot of what the dismemberment plan do that is like elaborated upon in their following albums and debatably done a little bit better. But the novelty of this album and the tone and singularity of it, I think really maximize its appeal. I, I really think this is a great album, even if it's like the the least great of the three dismemberment plan albums I've heard, I can still say confidently that I would say it's maybe even a little underrated by people and that I, I don't really think that there's a, that they swing for the fences on this album with every song and they don't miss a single time, really. I, I said this to you while you were listening to it and I still, it feels like an obvious point of reference, but like those three core dismemberment plan records is Terrified, Emergency and Iron Change is just like, it's the Ben's OK Computer and Ken. Mm -hmm. That's that's what it is. And you know, and as Terrified occupies that Ben space beautifully, like there are plenty of legitimately flooring songs on it, but there is also this kind mm -hmm. of like finding confidence aspect to it. Sometimes it goes on a bit of a bit more nervous energy and it's a bit kind of, again, you can't help but compare to the elaborated sophistication of, of what was to come. Uh, and you would be, you would probably find that the people who think it's the best this memory plan album would be in the minority but like with ben's mm -hmm. truthers i'm sure that they exist uh it's just like oh one yeah of those things where great records and um it's really hard to kind of examine one without thinking about its relationship to the other ones once you know them all uh and a lot of oh, the, yeah. the best parts of uh is terrified are definitely things that are done a bit better and a bit more fleshed out on emergency and i but you know, you're still going to have uh, Ice of Boston. You're still going to have This Is The Life. You're still going to have, you know, Manipulate mm. Me and Do The Standing Still and Academy Award and all that. And tonight we mean it. And those are just fantastic songs, regardless of what context you're listening to them in. I mean, the the fact that like the best endorsement of this album that I can possibly fathom is that I listened to this band's two best and most acclaimed albums first and then had 
no trouble going back to this whatsoever. So highly recommend that if you are at all into the brand of music that the dismemberment plan occupy. And the other sort of album that I visited that's a, a, a sequel to stuff I talked about last week is that I got into Wilco with their album A Ghost Is Born, as mentioned. So, of course, this week I listened to Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, the, Yankee the, the immortal Hotel classic. Foxtrot. And uh, this album is just as good. It's great. It's fantastic. I mean, it's it's an album that I think, Riley, you told me you didn't envy me having to go back to something with this kind of reputation this far into my life. And honestly, it was good for all of the same reasons that I enjoyed A Ghost is Born. But again, this is more, it's appealing to less fringe sensibilities than that album. And this is more just sort of fleshing out the core of Wilco sound. Not to say that it's not like instrumentally ambitious or just fascinating on an instrumental level, which it absolutely is. But I mean, I have a very boring take about this album, which is that it's great front to back, but my favorite moments on it by far are the centerpiece tracks, Jesus, etc., and Ashes of the American Flag, which are just fucking immaculate songs. Just stuff like Reservations, Pot Kettle Black. So much of the drumming on this album is stupendously good, especially on stuff like Pot Kettle Black. Uh, there's also like probably the most iconic Wilco song, uh, so iconic that it, that the documentary, the again, I've already mentioned this, but the incredible documentary about the making of this album is named for it. I am trying to break your heart, which is like when you Great hear song. that shit, just everything in that song, not only the ambitiousness of the arrangement, especially when you consider the song originally started in a much more modest form, uh, you know, acoustic guitar lead sort of thing. And just as they were building the album and figuring out what direction it was going to take, just more and more shit keep getting added to I am trying to break your heart to the point where, you know, at the climax of that song, just the the sheer scale of the mix and everything that's happening is this almost overwhelming Jeff Tweedy's bleeding voice. A song that's purely constructed out of what feels like fringe details from other songs. And that's like the core of it, which is what makes it really fascinating and ambitious. It's it's something that I'm going to come back to a lot, I can feel, and something that I'm probably going to enjoy more in the future, even though, again, there's nothing on here that's anything less than excellent. And all it does is incentivize me to listen to everything this band's ever made. Like, I'm, I'm going to go back, I'm going to listen to all the classic albums, all the albums that people think are underrated, ev everything. Uh, they, they have more than earned it from me. And as Riley teased earlier, I finally listened to just because she was in the news and because I consider her music to be one of my biggest musical blind spots, especially considering the kind of music that I listen to. Again, like Wilco, this is a an artist that if you pictured my taste in music, you would imagine me already being into them. But I listened to my first album from album and EP from one Miss Joanna Newsom. Uh, the first thing I listened to from her was actually her uh, EP that is amusingly titled Joanna Newsom and the East Street Band EP, uh, two songs of which are made it onto one of her studio records. But I listened to just the three songs that are on here. And I, I recommend this kind of as a primer, just because the one thing you got to know about Joanna Newsom is that this bitch has a let's shall we say a dexterous singing voice um her performance style is so 
out there and eccentric, I can see it being polarizing, like to the point where I was the the comparisons that I was bringing up to her and her music were that of, you know, very typical comparisons, a lot of Kate Bush, a lot of Bjork, a lot of Julia Holter, very similar stylings there. But if you think that Bjork has a, a knack for taking melodies and going strange directions and places with them, Joanna Newsom is like Bjork on hard mode. Uh, the, the the way that she changes up her inflections, the way she just sort of rides out these melodies, her vocal runs are fucking absurd. They are strange. They are weird. And it will take some getting used to, which is why this EP was kind of invaluable for me in sort of getting settled into her performance style. I, I really love every song on here, by the way. Uh, Colleen is a great opener. Clam Crab, Cookie Cockle Cowrie, uh, a particularly underrated and more stripped back second song. And the absolutely gorgeous 13 minute long cosmia this is easily one of the best eps that i've listened to in some time frankly but i segued with that directly into joanna newsom's most recent album 2015's divers and i was ready i was just like okay all of her albums are super super well beloved i i'm into her uh i'm i'm ready let's do this and even though i had high expectations somehow i'm i think this album managed to 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 knock them down even still because divers is fucking fucking amazing and it's it's the type of album the type of amazing album that is my favorite type of record in that when i was done hearing each and every song i was like oh god i'm nowhere near finished oh. listening to this song just because there is so much happening not just from an instrumental perspective which trust me there's a lot going on here there's i mean the, honestly one of the things that really surprised me the most about her performance style and just a lot of her music is how much bluegrass is in her music like it, it's definitely not a a feature that is ever the sole focus of what she's doing but if you're familiar with that style of music you will recognize it very frequently in both her vocals and both like the very twangy guitars and acoustics that she often uses but man when it comes to the instrumental palette of this album it's exactly like the album cover it is gorgeous it's beautiful there are harp strings the closer has the entire fucking london symphony orchestra on it uh... everything on it sounds incredible like the guitars on songs like goose eggs or maybe one of my favorite song titles of all time which is waltz of the 101st lightborn there's so many things on here that just make me go I didn't know that this instrument could even sound like this. What the mm. fuck? And of course, you've got that kind of, you know, the 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 art pop ho instrumental palette of like, you know, here's a harpsichord, here's a dulcimer, here's a this, here's a that. But it all kind of blends into this foggy sort of sound that feels like you're between two different worlds and sort of just you have a lens in on the stories that Joanna is telling and that is the core central appeal of something like divers is the sense of storytelling oh. is that paying attention to her lyricism is 
is a bit difficult just because this is such an overwhelming listen and i recommend just sort of taking it in as like a vibe first and then trying to dissect it a little bit more after i actually listened to this like at the start of my shift and at the end of my shift and it made for a perfect little experience where i was able to digest the music and then digest the stories sort of uh concurrently in each listen and I gotta say, like from a writing perspective, I enjoy Joanna's storytelling the way I would great prose from any author. Like it's, there is a meter and delivery and poeticism to her words that is very, very clever and very obviously, you know, skillful, but nonetheless, really enraptured from a storytelling perspective. Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot of thematic content about this album, about like just the brevity of time and the idea of change and metamorphosis and on this album it's captured really well in both the music and the lyrics to the point where there are even really scant songs on here like the two and a half minute long the things i say which god it's so beautiful i was like standing there and i was just like oh my god and then it just sort of like cuts off at this hard cut at the end of the song you're just like like you just feel like the breath has been robbed of your lungs. It's it's such a beautiful, amazing, fascinating record. And I'm just like, I can see why she only releases like two albums in a given decade, because this is clearly the product of a lot of work, a lot of time, a lot of money, just because it sounds very expensive, but because feasibly, if Joanna released two albums in her discography, I feel like people would still love her just as much because there's enough material there to satisfy you for decades. There's so much to pour over. There's so much to go through that I just like the idea that she has a triple album like Have One On Me, which Riley talked about very uh, astutely last week, which is another incentive I had to listen to her music. The idea that she has a triple album, a two hour long record is just like, Oh my, oh my God, I don't know how I'm going to deal with this shit, man. Other than that, alongside uh, Riley, of course, I listened to the new album by M83, uh, because not only did Riley release a discography video about the entire discography up until the new album of the band, but I took an effort to listen to all of the albums from this band that I hadn't heard before and some that had just been a long time since I had heard them. So it led me to discovering lots of great records like For the Dawn Heals Us, which I hadn't heard but think is comfortably I'd say it's either my it's either my second or first favorite next to Dead Cities uh Red Seas and Lost Ghosts which is an album I had heard before but couldn't really fully appreciate just because of how extreme it pushes its sort of sonic envelope uh which I can appreciate a lot more steadfastly now um and now uh we have Fantasy which I think the first half of which was actually released a couple of weeks ago in the form of an EP. So it's yeah. kind of technically been out for a little while, this part of the record anyway. And now the whole record is here. And this is really peculiar because like in a moment to moment basis, this is really satisfying. This is like a lot of these songs, they again, like um, Hurry Up We're Dreaming, which really does kind of feel like the last truly canonical entry in this discography i know that there was junk after that but the the last m83 album that felt like an m83 album like properly it, it sounds expensive like that album did but it goes for 
it almost blends the ambient sensibilities of like the digital shade projects in some respects is that a lot of these songs are a little bit less dynamic and some of them venture into the sort of 80s pop kind of sound that the band dabbled in and like you can hear some of the ideas from junk carried over into some of these songs but largely speaking it's an album that's a lot more uniform in sound and just sort of aesthetic and what it's giving you and in theory with an m83 album i feel like that's kind of what i've wanted from them for a long time now is that i really enjoy when they diversify their aesthetic a lot but with the last album that they made that i feel like i really gravitated towards which is hurry up we're dreaming that's an album that just sort of throws everything in with the kitchen sink that's got like all these interludes all these different ideas it's again the 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 cheap one of the cheap comparisons for that album uh was uh anthony gonzalez said that it was melancholy and the infinite sadness which very much feels like a, a, a aesthetically the sort of digital equivalent to that whereas this feels like an attempt to sort of just refine and make a more solidly constructed album experience and i like it for that but i also think that maybe it, it it's it, it it runs out of steam i think it, it really kind of shot itself in the foot i think by releasing that first half of it first because i think handily the best moments of the album are on that first half and if you listen to that as an ep i feel like it would probably be a little bit more satisfying than the whole album which does run a bit long at 66 minutes i'm never not enjoying what i'm hearing but there are moments where it's sort of going through ideas that it's already gone through on the track list over and over again. And I find it a little bit less compelling than other entries in the discography that even though like Dead Cities is an album that like it, it also has a very uniform aesthetic and it's very much about pulverizing you with it, which I feel like that overpowering quality is both kind of a weakness, but also that album's biggest strength. Whereas here, there's a bit more spaciousness and an attempt to like more round out the sound necessarily. But at the same time, that also makes it feel a bit languid, in my opinion, anyway. It, it's a good album, but it I'm constantly wishing that it's a little bit more than it is. Here's my take. And I've been preparing for this, you know, ever since the fact that I did a, a video ranking M83's albums, knowing that a new record was coming and very much kind of setting up uh, the groundwork for analyzing and looking at whatever this new record was going to be through the lens of what M83 is and has been. And so I've been a fan of M83 for more than a decade, which I definitely would have talked about in the video. If you've seen it, I'll put a link above my head in case you haven't. I'm really proud of it. Check it out if you're interested, of course. But the thing to understand about M83 when you approach basically any new material they put out is that the arc of M83's discography climaxes with Hurry Up, We're Dreaming. Everything that Anthony Gonzalez and, of course, former collaborator Nicholas Fremigeau on those first two records, but everything that Anthony Gonzalez did from the very first M83 album through to Hurry Up, We're Dreaming is a steady arc upwards. And I don't mean an arc in terms of quality, because, you know, spoiler alert, my favorite album is 2005's Before the Dawn Heals Us, which is squarely in the middle of that arc. But in terms of Anthony gradually realizing the full scale and size of his ambitions, in terms of integrating his influences and pulling them all together into this 
glorious, ecstatic, euphoric realization of pop perfection. The whole arc of M83 is, is rising and moving towards that point. And that album is the pinnacle. That album is the realization of all of those ambitions. You know, just because it's not my absolute favorite M83 album doesn't take away from that at all. That is the, the mm. peak that the entire M83 discography is building towards. And so everything that comes after that album as a product of that arc is inessential by definition. I don't mean not worth hearing. I don't mean not good. But mm. as a product of what M83 is and the moment that M83 represented throughout the 2000s and building that point and you know everything glorious about that climax, how huge that album was, how successful it was, that is the natural end point for M83. And Anthony Gonzalez himself would say this too. He might not put it in those exact words, but he would echo this sentiment as well. Everything he has done since has been a reaction to and an attempt to get away from the terror that the success of Hurry Up, We're Dreaming instilled within him. Because while it was the fullest artistic realization of everything he wanted to do, the success of that record, particularly the success of Midnight City, completely spooked him and completely had him entirely disenfranchised and disengaged from his own success and from what people wanted from him. Junk in a huge to a huge extent, as a reaction to that, as an attempt to completely remove any sense of hype surrounding his musical and artistic identity and just dwell within the realm of what interests him on a personal idiosyncratic level. I appreciate that album on a really personal level, and I think there's a lot of stuff on that record that I really, really love, but I appreciate also and understand that it is not really a part of the M83 arc. Everything is incidental. Everything is just m83's late work essentially uh, all hanging in this kind of you know collective glow basically of that high point so approaching fantasy is really really interesting because it is i think the first thing that anthony has made since hurry up we're dreaming that feels as though it is in some way attempting to capture some essence of the energy that that album was all about uh, there's elements of the instrumentation of the way these songs are arranged and the focus on vocals, but also the focus on those really heavily reverbed shoegaze guitars that do echo uh, what Anthony was doing on Hurry Up, We're Dreaming, but not in such a massive, explosive way, in a slightly more muted way, in a slightly more, I suppose, moody way. And so mm -hmm. fantasy is an attempt, I think, to make is, is, is a showcase of Anthony kind of gradually building some degree of courage back towards where his success isn't as frightening for him anymore, but still remaining firmly entrenched in the space where what interests him is much less to do with the strengths of those greatest M83 records and much more to do with his own personal satisfaction out of making music that is not very ambitious, music that does not respond to or relate to the arc of m83 as a cultural entity all that much but that is just much more restrained and much less ambitious and so in order to engage with any of the late period m83 stuff you kind of need to be approaching it with that lens and i find a lot very beautiful and very satisfying about fantasy it is not a great album and it is not really trying to be a great album i don't really think that anthony gonzalez will mm -hmm. try to make a great album in the sense that he was making these great massive forward move moving statements with those big m83 records ever again there's certainly a sense of 
the more dreamy focus on pure ambience and film score-esque work that he was moving towards with um, the Digital Shades uh, Volume 2 album that he put out back in 2018 or 2019. And there's a sense of combining that with a little bit more urgency that reminds you again of records like Hurry Up to some extent. But still, again, lingering in that space where it kind of feels like you're listening to an extended soundtrack more than a studio album. And I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. I think that I agree. The The arc of the first half of the record, especially building to Earth to Sea, which I think is the most climactic and satisfying musically part of the whole album, is kind of like what you all you really need. And the stuff after that feels, yes, less essential even within this overall an essential album, but still full of surprises. Like I really like the song Laura. Uh, I think the track called Nuit has this kind of like moody slow burn uh atmosphere that's a little bit darker that i appreciate coming at that point in the record but yeah overall it kind of is the sort of thing that just sort of washes over you and were i to rank it it would be probably pretty close to the bottom of my uh, em83 ranking overall but i i i feel the need to press preface those kind of underwhelming thoughts by this contextual stuff because i think it's important to appreciate that one of the most ambitious artists of the 2000s who def- basically defined the you know bleeding heart reaching for the sky's hugeness of some of the best music from that period has withdrawn from that and is no longer interested in pursuing those efforts and so you are best to appreciate and approach fantasy when viewing it through that lens of a late work that is more modest and that is more satisfied for evoking a mood and letting you kind of exist within pretty soundscapes and having them feel as though they're moving in a certain direction but not really reaching for anything stratospheric yeah that's a lot of words to basically say it's decent and i really enjoyed it and i'm glad it Mm -hmm. exists and i will probably come back to it once or twice in the future uh, down the road I think there's plenty to enjoy about it. I think people who ha- who don't have as lofty of an expectation or as a desire for the music of someone as talented as Anthony Gonzalez, we might get even more out of it than me. I know a lot of M83 fans are buzzing with this and absolutely love it. And so power to them. I think it's a beautiful little record and probably will be very emblematic of all the music Anthony will make for the rest of his time with M83. And I don't hold that against him in the slightest. Uh, the last thing I want to talk about is uh, I think my favorite new release of the week, uh, you know, and I do like both of the new albums that we talked about the other day a great deal and they've grown on me a lot, as you'll hear about when you watch that video, if you haven't already, but my favorite new release of the week, um, it's kind of not a new release and it kind of is a new release. It is a com- it's technically a compilation, but it's also being released, but it's also like material that hasn't really appeared anywhere else except as loose singles. And it is the newest release from one Mr. Lil Ugly Maine, who is currently touring Australia and New Zealand. I am devastated that he's not coming close enough for me to go and see him because I would have loved to have seen him live. One of my favorite artists working at the moment. But at his shows, and I love that he's just done this or started doing this specifically on this Australia New Zealand tour. But at these shows, he's been selling tapes that compile the loose singles that he dropped throughout 2022 uh, in the wake of his gargantuan masterpiece, Volcanic Bird Enemy, which came out in 2021. Uh, he released, he's been releasing loose songs uh, ever since then. And I've been waiting for enough of them to compile in my own like homemade compilation but then just he just comes along and does it for me and sequences them perfectly and compiles them together in a way where it's like okay this is actually not just here i'm throwing these songs together this feels like an album 
a short one to be sure, but it feels like an album. It's called L-U-M, Lum. It's just given a very simple uh, initial title, which befits how unceremonious it is in the way that it appears. I mean, it hasn't even been released on streaming. It's just been released as a tape, which has since leaked online. And now you can listen to it on YouTube. Very easy to find. Um, but yeah. I just and- downloaded it on SoulSeek. Wonderful. Absolutely worth hearing. Again, it's 27 minutes. Uh, it starts with an instrumental track, and but the vast majority of the songs are, you know, giving you more of that shade of sort of psychedelic adjacent, sort of dreary, mesmerizing, hypnotic rock music that he's been kind of moving towards. But there was also stuff here that flirts with a slightly different sound for him as well. You know, one of my favorite songs of last year was the absolute highlight here, Easy Prey, which is this kind of really noisy, heavy aesthetic with these gorgeously beautiful ghostly guitar leads. Um, You have a lot of variation on this short project. It really shows a lot of different strengths that, um, that Travis has honed over his time basically making music ever since he moved away from you know the the dat piff era hip-hop stuff he was doing in the early 2010s as with most of travis's music although certainly not as much as something like oblivion access this is a dour and sad listen i mean especially a song like low tide at the drying out facility which is a very frank song about his miserable experience in rehab but still i think if you're willing to immerse yourself in some pretty miserable states of mind you'll get a lot out of this music i i think he's still one of the greatest beat makers working today he's got such a distinct and recognizable style even as he's making instrumentals and varied uh different genres and using different kind of samples and and all kinds of things and he finds even though his vocal style is very sort of hazy and almost sort of spoken word he is able to put himself out there in a way that is distinct enough and will have these songs basically knocking around the back of your head for a while um great great little release uh definitely will probably go very under the radar so i wanted to give it its own little spotlight here because i don't know what is next for travis whether he's planning to work on a new album um, of course, this release suggests he's sort of drawing a line under these loose singles. So we don't know. Maybe he's taking a break, focusing on, you know, living for a bit or touring for a bit. Who knows? Um, but yeah, every bit of music we get from Travis, I want to shout out and celebrate because, yeah, I know it takes a lot for him. And and yeah, anyway, it's great. Which brings us to our main topic of discussion today, which, as I alluded to at the very top of this episode, is great albums that are under 30 minutes, those short little nugget-sized bits of brilliance. I mean, last week we talked about how artists can take the sprawl of two hours plus to really let all of their strengths kind of fly. And here we're very much talking about the inverse. We're talking about how artists can use a more compact format to get across something really potent, really powerful, and really effective without falling into the trap of making the record feel as though it leaves you wanting more or it exists in a state of incompleteness. You know, and it's a really hard balance to treat. I mean, I know a lot of the ones that I've picked are not only shorter than 30 minutes, they're much shorter than 30 minutes. So I think an interesting thing that I want each of us to kind of think about or talk about when we discuss these is what is it about these albums that makes them feel like enough, even though they're so short? What is it about the album that makes it feel distinct from an EP? And what is it about the album that makes it great to you? Those three things I think would be good to talk about with each of our suggestions. So Jake, why don't you lead off first with your first pick 
for great albums shorter than 30 minutes? Well, as alluded to, I've been looking for the album that sort of the the grindcore record that I wanted to insert here because it's a genre of music that I do have a lot of affinity for, uh, even though it's sort of it, it doesn't have the the greatest standing when it comes to conversations and mo- modern popular music. But it is a, a sect that I find as fascinating and as challenging as any other kind of music that's, you know, on the extreme or heavy end of the spectrum. And Nails is a metalcore band that they have sort of been, they've released three records over the course of the 2010s and became like a really big name in this particular avenue of music. And in sort of their career arc is difficult to gauge, not only because their albums are short, but because again, they only have three of them and it is a very uniform sound that they deal in. But In listening to all three of their records this week, I was able to sort of hone down what makes all of these different, what makes them special, and what makes them appeal to me the most. Uh, 2010's Unsilent Death being an album that they sort of got started with, and that being a kind of raw, unrefined, just sort of pedal to the metal kind of experience i mean this is a 12 minute long album uh it's deluxe edition adds like five songs and it still doesn't even crack 20 minutes fully um but it is nonetheless an earth-shatteringly heavy experience but it doesn't really venture into any areas you would expect or that you uh, wouldn't expect rather and 2016's you will never be one of us is maybe i think the most fully formed album it's the longest of the three uh and it feels most like the the most traditionally satisfying experience and sort of feels like they their arc is that they took a sort of raw unrefined energy that just sort of prioritized being explosive loud and heavy and then sort of trimmed it back to be not like neater or even necessarily more digestible but just more refined as they went on so to me the sweet spot is the album at the center of their career which is 2013's abandon all life which is my first pick here and this is a weird little album just because i think that this is probably the most adventurous of the three but also maybe one of the more it it isn't the most restrained but it still feels like the one that it, it almost feels the most concentrated because it occupies a middle ground in their arc and in their sound there's actually a lot more kind of sludge metal that's in this album that i find really compelling about nails's sound that like again kurt Ballou's production really emphasizes on here and nails in my opinion are basically the quintessential grindcore band because the heaviness the speed the aggression it's always at maximum it's at full throttle every bit of these mixes is occupied to the point where it's just as loud as it possibly can be And again, that's something some people might find alienating, but I find it really alluring as someone who really likes it when extremes are exercised. And with Abandon All Life, it's really curious to see them exploring tendencies that are arguably kind of progressive for them. For example, the closer on here is five minutes long, which for this band is downright progressive, frankly. There are elements of like 
traditional doom metal on this album that are like they're slower sludgier riffs that they're cycled between different moments of more extreme aggression sure but it feels like this is nails pulling from all of their influences and more successfully integrating them into an experience that actually isn't wholly unlike uh, that most recent Wormrot album, uh, where it sort of feels like they're drawing from several different types of heavy music and metal. And it just creates an interesting experience that simultaneously feels like it's the most hard hitting they've ever been, but also the most diverse that they've ever been. It's a 17 minute long album, so it's not even like verging up there in terms of 30 minute long records, but if you actually take a minute to explore the lyricism on any Nails record, you'll actually find that not only is it very thoughtful, it's crushingly terrifying and depressing. Like, good God, some of the shit on Abandon All Life will give you nightmares. But it's relentless momentum is just, it's so much. And as a result, it ends up feeling like you're getting an hour's worth of metal condensed into 17 minutes and as a result i never feel like i'm left wanting more like the they really do feel like the short album format is the opportune way to make releases like they're they're a band that sure i would love more material from uh although it looks unlikely considering i'm pretty sure this band has one active member right now but their discography for what it is, feels very fleshed out, and I feel like Abandon All Life is the most interesting and sort of the epitome of what this band is capable of. And, you know, if you're into metal music and you haven't given this kind of stuff a shot, I'd say that Abandon All Life is a fantastic place to start. It might be my favorite Grindcore album. It's honestly either this or Hiss. I haven't really decided, but it is an album that contains a lot of diversity within its 17 minutes. Fantastic. I still haven't heard any Nails albums in full, which really I don't have any excuse for considering how short they are, but I, I really do need to change that. I, I, I think I pre- want to, pre- I keep, when I think about Nails, I keep having the thought that I need to really prepare myself to be in a headspace, to be able to take it in uh, and not just have Probably. it be this kind of wall of noise. Um, but then again, I haven't heard them, so I don't know if I'd even had that experience. You should probably check out their most recent uh, You Will Never Be One of Us first, because I think that is the most digestible as an album experience, and then kind of go for the other two after that, just because it feels like the it feels like the best entry point for them. Yeah, I'm kind of fami- more familiar with bands that they've been associated with, like Full of Hell and The Body, mm. for instance, than not, not, yeah. the Nails themselves, because they're bands that typically tend to do incorporate a little bit more on the industrial side of things which tends to appeal a bit more Mm -hmm. to me whereas nails are like pure power violence classic so i need to really educate myself my first pick today um now i have hemmed and hauled on what order to present these in as well because i kind of want to I don't know. I I, I want to really, I think, end with the one I have the most to say about. And I do have a fair amount to say about all three of these. But I also want to acknowledge from the jump that there are a lot of classic records, like really beloved albums that are shorter than 30 minutes that we're not picking mm-hmm. for this. And it's not necessarily on purpose. I think we've kind of highlighted things that reflect our particular personalized interests and how oh, yeah. the things we love in music are reflected in shorter runtimes in particular instances. 
And of course, Morgan was going to join us for this, but couldn't make it as well. So I want to acknowledge uh, his selections too, which he did list. Uh, Morgan was going to talk about Against Me's Transgender Dysphoria Blues, uh, Touche Amore's yep. Is Survived By, and Bob Dylan's Nashville Skyline. Uh, both, all three of which are, I that think, was a runner up for me. Are great examples of fantastic artists utilizing a, a space of succinctness to really execute a clear idea uh, against me and uh touche more of course shorter runtimes not being essentially all that unfamiliar for them but that bob dylan record as well mm-hmm. i really wanted to acknowledge because that is a bit more unusual for him and represents one of those earlier stages in his career where he's really starting to go beyond what is expected of him and showcase some of mm-hmm. his more eccentric um sensibilities as he would go into his career I mean, other classics I want to acknowledge as well. Slayer's Rain and Blood, uh, Nick Drake's Pink Moon, which we did a whole video on. The Descendants, Milo Goes to College as well. Very classic 20-minute album. Pusha T's Daytona, I wanted to acknowledge that as well because that is one of the most, I think one of the most iconic sub-30-minute albums of the last 10 years. But my first pick is probably the only one of my three picks that's going to be like super well-known. So I think I'm going to lead off with it for that reason. And that is Fella Ransom Cootie's Expensive Shit. Uh, for those who don't know, Fella Cootie is basically the prevailing origin, not maybe not originator, but certainly one of the key figures in the early development of Afrobeat as well. Legendary Nigerian artist and cultural figure who had who led a very colorful and interesting life and made a lot of very dense and but also very fun and accessible music. I think nowhere did that get more accessible than 1975's Expensive Shit, which is a great way of introducing yourself to Fella, not just because it is one of his easiest records to just put on and groove to, but also because it has a very funny and amusing backstory and is a stellar, phenomenal showcase for what a multi-talented musician Falakuti actually is. And what I mean by that is that on this album, uh, he is not just playing the saxophone, which he is, of course, well-known for doing, but is also playing the piano, leading the vocals, arranging, composing, and leading a band that is primarily made up of various figures on various forms of drums as well. This is a very rhythmic album. Of course, it's Afrobeat. It's a seminal Afrobeat text. You're expecting there to be a heavy placement on drums and particularly congas as well, which make up a huge part of the bedrock of this record. And the interplay between the conga playing and the drum work of Henry Coffey, Tony Allen, Nicholas Addo, and of course, Fela Kuti's incredible sax work himself on the two pieces that comprise this 24 minute record is absolutely essential iconic again these are very simple grooves and very well they appear very simple anyway there's a lot going on but it's a very easy record to put on which is to say the story behind the the title track of course being told in Cutie's particular brand of of pidgin English, which was deliberately chosen to make his music appeal to a wider Nigerian demographic. But he basically tells the story of how the Nigerian police planted a joint on him in order to have uh, cause for arrest. Uh, But he ate the joint. And then the police, essentially knowing that he had done this, then decided to extract a stool sample from Mr. Cootie himself. And so in order to avoid getting busted based on his stool sample, he acquired the 
feces of another inmate in the holding cell uh, at his prison from which the title expensive shit derives it is very literal and of course there is the other track as well on the second side water no get enemy which is slightly more elemental and relates to a yoruban proverb about um, the nature of the universe very cool stuff uh very fun and gives that you an insight into yeah gives you an insight into Kuti's sense of humor as well as the very unique and idiosyncratic way that he translates and adapts different aspects of the culture that he comes from and communicates that in a very funny, psychedelic, and just generally awesome and deeply funky set of compositions, basically. And yeah, it's essential listening for anyone who wants to get an idea of what Afrobeat's all about. Uh, and you can, you know, develop from there and, and lean into more Western stuff if you want to get a sense of how these types of rhythms and these types of uh, compositions bleed through into I guess more conventionally popular music but really a lot of it does double back to Fela Kuti and his immaculate work on this album which is my first pick for essential records shorter than 30 minutes my next pick on here is something that we kind of mentioned somewhere recently in one segment like this as being applicable for one of these segments but something i didn't ultimately choose just because i felt like it sort of skirted along the guidelines for that prompt so i elected to use it here that being kids see ghosts the memorable collaboration between kanye west and kid cuddy that came out alongside albums like daytona which we just mentioned uh in that sort of prolific phase of Kanye's career when he was, you know, making those albums like uh, Nasir or, uh, you know, Daytona, Kids See Ghosts, Yay, and uh, something else that I can't remember off the top of the my Tiana head. The Tiana Taylor album. Regardless, uh, Kids See Ghost uh, is my favorite album out of that crop. Not by that much because i also really like daytona but still i i'd say i'd pay, place a fairly confident label on this being my favorite because ah, it's embarrassing just because this is a very discoursed album it's a it's a record that very much relies on the names behind it for a lot of its acclaim and i think therefore is very rarely kind of actually dissected for what it is beyond being just the collaboration between Kanye and Kid Cudi, which is valuable in and of itself. I mean, we're talking about two of the biggest and most cutting edge artists that came along sort of at that like perfect point in the 2000s and 2010s to be as influential as humanly possible over the landscape of popular music. And, you know, it's not the first time they collaborated together, but it is the first time they collaborated substantially with one another. And as a result, you get this very weird off the wall record that just manages to combine the most compelling aspects of Kanye and Cuddy, but not just the most compelling aspects of them, but the most extreme aspects of these two artists as performers and as lyricists. This record to me is a tantalizing prospect because Kanye and Cuddy are both known for being kind of manic and at the, you know, the appeal of manic artists is that you get a sort of uh, 
an anti-equilibrium on their projects is that they tend to go back and forth between two extreme polarities in terms of energy, in terms of what they're bringing to the table creatively. And this seems to be an exercise that refines these extreme polarities with nothing in between and just makes a project that's 20 minutes of that. And I think that the end result is both really compelling, really strange, and just kind of otherworldly. It's a kind of experimental psychedelic hip hop that I haven't really come across in another project. It, it really does feel very unique in how it blends the kind of psychedelia and trap that Cuddy often deals in, but also the more hard-hitting and eclectic sampling that Kanye is more often known for. And again, as a 20-minute long experience, I just think that this brings everything to the table that you would possibly want out of a project like this. You have more fundamental moments that feel kind of like exercises in just these guys doing what they usually do uh, very well, like Feel the Love, which is the opener that also features Pusha T. Um, but it also showcases uh, Kanye in one of his more extreme deliveries where he's like, and it's it's really fun. What can I say? It's it's infectious on here, his delivery. Like whenever Kanye comes in with a verse or just a sonic idea on this record, it's as vital and as helpful as he's ever felt. And I'm not somebody who really tends to always love when Kanye is like that because he's so usually focused on, you know, externalizing everything so that it, the, these extreme moments tend to stick out like a sore thumb on his records proper. But on here, this is just kind of the default setting. So when he comes in with a verse on something like Fourth Dimension, which is fucking hilarious against my better judgment, uh, one of the most memorable lines of his entire career, she said, I'm in the wrong hole. I said, I'm lost. This is a very funny record, uh, which I, I again, I also don't think it's given enough sort of uh, credit for. But there are these moments on here like Free, Ghost Town Part 2, which are just these overwhelming galactic sized worlds of psychedelia, which are beautiful sounding. And they do things like sample a reversed Christmas song, or you have something like uh, Fire, which feels like a almost like a pirate chant. I mean, there's the the sort of guiding rhythm of this song sounds like Tom Waits for fuck's sake. And then you have moments of genuine emotional effectiveness in stuff like Reborn, which is the best utilization of Kid Cudi, I think basically ever. His trademarked vocalizations are on here, but generally his, his verses are also just quite effective on here. And that's sort of the name of the game for this project is that I also think that this has a kind of emotional arc to it that is kind of captivating for both of these people. They are generally people who are they're just sort of shackled to their various mental ailments in their music. That's a topic that they bring up over and over again. And Kids See Ghost feels like an active attempt to sort of liberate themselves from those confines and just express a kind of unencumbered freedom that feels very pure in an artistic sense and in a personable one that 
yields a very unusually identifiable listen from both of these artists that feels very relatable and it does that by transporting you into this other world i will admit i do think that this is a great album but it also acts as a really effective time capsule this album feels so emblematic of this period in kanye's career and this moment in like 2017 was right as after I started really getting into music, when I was really paying attention to what people were saying about certain records and really attuned into the moment. So this was the first album cycle of Kanye's I was really ever cognizant for. I, I mean, I kind of was for Life of Pablo, but like not really. But this I was actually like into and invested in and getting to participate in the moment that this occupied, getting to listen to this along with everyone and just talk about it it's a very nostalgic point for me. It, it takes me back to a much simpler time that I have a, an un, unexpectedly deep-rooted uh, set of emotions in. So I, I really do love this record as uncool as that might be. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I certainly don't have the connection or affection for this that you do, but I want to say, I think, maybe out of all of the albums that the two of us have picked today, there may not be a better encapsulation of how the kind of self-imposed limitation of making a deliberately short record can heighten the strengths of the people involved. There is an aspect yes. to Kanye and Cuddy's collaborative nature on this record that kind of holds them both in check and sort of forces each of them to really distill to its essence what basically makes them great. And while it doesn't come off for me, mm -hmm. I will say I think the final three songs on here are all great and probably just the ones I listen to more so when I come back to this era. There is this aspect to the brevity here that I think maybe unlike some of the other records where we might say, you know, these are mostly artists who we would certainly trust in a longer format, who are deliberately choosing to be more concise. This is a project where if they were to stretch this to a longer length, a lot of what makes it so potent and effective would probably be lost or at least heavily diluted. Um, so yeah, there's an aspect to the brevity here where it is not only a strength in the sense that it makes it all feel very much more potent, but in it, it is a part of what gives it the identity that it has. And that whole period for Kanye in June of 2018, when he was releasing all of these albums, that brevity was such a defining factor. It came out of the limitation of Kanye wanting to produce as many albums as he was producing in as short a time as he did. But it ultimately ended up being of huge benefit to records like this and the Pusha T album, especially, and that it forced a distillation. And, a, and, and also one of the other reasons and ways in which the brevity helped a record like this as well is that the particularly kind of angular and I guess jagged production style that Kanye basically adopted with Life of Pablo and is pretty much stuck to ever since has really given a kind of immediacy and just kind of hard hittingness here that it lacks on the more sprawling projects where it really just starts to feel like more of a product of Kanye's dissociative approach to making music. Whereas here having this more kind of almost cubist approach to production, that's a really stupid way of putting it, but you know, just all hard lines I feel you. and just like hard edits and all that sort of stuff feels as though it's complementing the 
in and out nature of the way these projects present themselves. For my second pick, I, I want to talk about an album from a band that basically exist primarily in the format of shorter releases and use that as a powerful way of making their music feel as impactful as possible. I'm going to talk about one of the most important, one of the most celebrated, and one of the most just fist-pumpingly awe-inspiring bands of the third wave emo sort of pop-punk wave of the late 2000s, early 2010s. I want to talk about Joyce Manor. Now, Joyce Manor are a band who, every time they put an album out, I always have time for it because they have this real acute sense of how to distill all the, you know, just chest pumping, like immediate powerful emotions that you associate with post-punk and emo into this just blistering set of songs that leaves you feeling exhilarated and fulfilled. Now, certainly since 2016's Cody, they've moved in a direction of moving away from some of the more raw just immediacy of those earlier records and certainly developing their sound in ways that I appreciate. But basically the peak and pinnacle of everything Joyce Manor do and have done was reached with 2014's incendiary, fucking fantastic, never hung over again. Certainly one of the greatest albums ever made that is shorter than 20 minutes and unquestionably an album as well. These are get in, get out fast, one or two minute tracks that are purely these heavy, just beautifully captivating doses of energy that is all about celebrating the communion of partying with friends and of being in a certain moment in your mid to late 20s as well where you are where there's a certain value and energy and longing associated with that partying that is different to the kind of partying you do in your late teen years and your early 20s you know i i think about the spirit of this very much falls in line to me with the spirit of the best menzingers music as well which is about similar themes as well like the nature and the kind of like ritualistic almost religious feeling and association with partying as you get older how it becomes not just this you know way of connecting with the world and the scene that you're in and the people you're around but this holy communion with this essential part of your youth that you're trying to hold on to forever you know after the party is one of those albums that feels like it it captures that so powerfully and so distinctly. And though Joyce Manor are a very different band and a much more kind of stripped down and sort of bare bones band than the Menzingers, Never Hangover Again is another one of those records as well. I would also throw in Japan Droid Celebration Rock into the conversation as well, because that's another album that thematically captures a very similar thing. But Never Hungover Again is different because it is so short. It is so fire-paced. You know, you're getting the massive choruses, you're getting the massive sounds, but they're all coming in and out in these waves of one to two minute songs that just blow you away and give you everything you would want. Verse, chorus, a second verse if you're fucking lucky. But who needs that when you just want to capture the energy of a shout along chorus and make that be your whole album? And this is what Never Hung Over Again does so beautifully in songs like Christmas Tree and songs like, you know, The Incredible Heart Tattoo and songs like Schley and songs like Falling in Love Again, my favorite song on the record as well, which is, you know, also the longest song here at two minutes and 28 seconds. Uh, songs like The the Jerk, the 
the shortest song here, but also one of the most just fucking raw and shout along being the penultimate Catalina fight song. This is everything you would want from a bare bones distilled emo punk record in a short time frame. You know, it doesn't have the meat and the emotional density of bands like the Hotelier or even bands like the Menzingers who I've already mentioned, or basically most other post-punk bands. And that is because all of those layers, all of the emotional dynamics of that is stripped away for something that is just pure one emotion, one cathartic high being ridden for 19 minutes. There's no, <laughs> I mean, there's kind of ballads, I guess, and songs like Victoria and in the army now, but and he closer heated swimming pool, but that feels like a real stretch. This is the kind of album that, uh, as the title might suggest, you kind of put on when you're really hungover and really kind of regretting the extremity that you went to the night before, maybe being sent videos that someone else took of you doing some really, really stupid shit. And you need a combo of hard black coffee and something just really brutal to put in your ears and listen to maybe three times in a row to kind of kick you out of that funk and get you ready to do it again the next night to completely go back on your early morning promises of I am never doing that shit again. You know you're doing it again. You know you're doing it every night. You can fucking handle it. And Never Hung Over Again is an album that is for those moments. You, It is there for you in that particular juncture. And it only gains more profundity, I think, the older you get and the more nostalgic you get for those experiences. Uh, Joyce Manor fans will debate whether it's the best one. Certainly their debut is like a cut above and even shorter as well. And uh, a much more, I guess, violent delivery of their pop punk at its essence and also containing their best songs, Orange Julius and Constant Headache. But Never Hung Over Again is kind of the high watermark that their immediate sound built towards. And to me, is the album I will always put on before any other one, really, just because it is cathartic in a way that very few pop punk records are without also being 12 different other things. So yeah, Never Hung Over Again by Joyce Manor, absolutely my second pick for essential albums under 30 minutes. My final pick here uh, is not just and I've kind of been building up in terms of like what, like how much these albums mean to me. These are probably, these are probably my three favorite short albums, uh, but this is unquestionably my favorite. And what I kind of see as the, the pinnacle of the sub 30 minute long album and that it as an album experience, it feels the most whole, but also benefits completely from its length. And it's an album we've talked about before have an entire segment about it in fact uh it's the antlers in the attic of the universe and i couldn't not pick this one just because it's one of my favorite albums ever like really really far up there and if you want to see me go into way more detail go watch our antlers discography breakdown it's a great little video and i think we all bring something to all of those records which we all have a very distinct emotional attachment to based on various points in our lives and in the attic of the universe is very much an album for people who are in their you know early to mid 20s just sort of you've just become a, a proper adult and you feel a bit lost in the world 
And it's an album that has a really well-defined emotional arc of feeling lost and not really necessarily finding yourself, but finding a path in life. And it does this by just sort of really sending you through all of the different emotional and instrumental palettes and ideas that the Antlers as a band explore. It's way more ambitious than their relatively low-key debut. They go into some really kind of like there are parts on this album that are just plain ambient sonic landscapes that just have no lyrics at all and just they're so dense and pretty and overwhelming and some of them are intimidating and there's just there's so many different moods and facets within this 27 minute long record that i'm always kind of marveling at it and it has the bigger substantial songs the opener and closer are really a Effective, lengthy antlers tracks that you would want from the band in fact the ending track is my favorite antlers song but this is just a beautiful record that's an example of storytelling but it also uses its kind of brevity to just feel like it's at its most potent it's like kids see ghosts and that it feels like if you stretched it out to be any longer it would lose something in its immediacy it would lose something in how confrontational it is constantly with you and as a result it is infinitely re-listenable i've gone back to this album so much and it ends up being a record that whenever I just kind of need a minute, whenever I need to kind of detach from reality, whenever I just sort of need to quiet down my brain, this is my quintessential go-to album. Uh, And not to mention just that a record I think is stupendously underrated, and I think that's partially due to the length, is that people see it and deem it to be kind of insubstantial and because it's sort of at the beginning of their career. And I, I, I just feel like it there's so much more to it than that and it's a lot more dense than maybe people give it credit for well that's the story of the antlers really is that they they're a prime example of a band that had one album that was so huge and so kind of discourse dominating that basically everything they did before and after it gets kind of swallowed into irrelevance by the gaping Mm -hmm. black hole of that album of course i'm talking about 2009's hospice And one of the things I'm most proud of with our Antlers video is how we both do justice to that album, which is very dense and very emotionally draining, but also to the great work that exists on either side of it uh, in the attic of the universe Mm -hmm. being a prime example. And that's a great example of a short album that works in a kind of different way to a lot of the records we've talked about so far in the sense that it feels very much like one song essentially that you're one mm-hmm. piece that you're sweet. moving through a suite exactly and by the time you reach the end of it you've accumulated so much emotional intensity and you've gone through so much very ephemeral and like of stuff that really evokes clear environments and places and, and scenes in your head it's a great record to listen to in the dark that it is quite exhausting oh, yes. by the time you get to stairs in the attic which is the incredible cathartic finale that it would almost be unbearable for the record to extend any longer than it does so yeah i get a lot of i think a lot of people who people who enjoy the music of artists like phil alvram for instance will get a lot out of this album because it evokes yeah. space and nature and very isolated feelings not necessarily the same as loneliness although you can feel here loneliness in it too but the sense of 
comfortable isolation and I suppose unity in nature that comes through in, in the whole atmosphere and vibe of the album. Comfortable isolation is a perfect choice of words. That's exactly how I would distill the essence of this album. Mm. Yeah. My last album is I, I kind of saved this for last just because it's the one that takes the most energy from me or I, I, I knew would take the most energy for me to talk about. Um, it is a, it's an album that's immensely personal to me, but also in its nature, incredibly traumatic. Uh, and it's also an album I wanted to put some distance before talking about because it's from an artist who we've already talked about today, um, although working under a different alias with this particular record, uh, that being Mr. Travis Miller, a.k.a. Little Ugly Mane. Uh, who released a project under the pseudonym Bedwetter. Uh, and this album came out in initially in 2017 during the long period between the album Oblivion Axis and the revitalization of Little Ugly Main with 2021's Volcanic Bird Enemy. This album was the only piece of music that, or the only substantive piece of music that Travis released in that interim. And though I only kind of got on board with Travis when Volcanic Bird Enemy came out, this very quickly, because of aspects of its nature that I'm going to get into, became favorite is not the right way of putting it. But certainly the the release of Travis's that I find the most connection to and that I think is the most holistically perfect thing he's ever put out. And it's funny to say that as well, because structurally it's very unusual. And it doesn't do a lot that a great album in the conventional sense should do. I mean, only four of its nine songs have vocals. Uh, and one of those is just a repeated refrain. Uh, I, only two songs, well, three songs, I suppose, but there are really two songs that have substantive multiple verses and they're right at the beginning. And they're also songs that are so horrifyingly traumatic that you come you come to understand that the reason why the majority of the record runtime wise doesn't have much going on vocally is because there kind of can't be. Travis gets a lot of it out early on in the songs Man Wearing a Helmet and Stoop Lights. And then the rest of the album is kind of about capturing the fugue state that exists in the wake of a traumatic event. And I don't just mean in the short-term wake as well. This album, uh, Volume 1, Flick Your Tongue Against Your Teeth and Describe the Present, is the sound of someone processing and then attempting to translate the subjective experience of lost memory and dissociation in the wake of childhood post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, it is the sound of someone who has... And I don't know that much about Travis's life, and we're not to know, nor are we entitled to know the extent to which anything on this is autobiographical. But this is very clearly a work of art made about and reflecting childhood trauma. A uh, man wearing a helmet is a sensationalized and utterly harrowing account of a child kidnapping that is... Uh, initially from a distance observer perspective, but then eventually comes to be from the perspective of the confused and frightened child himself that ultimately morphs into this 
very upsetting refrain uh, where Travis is essentially entirely swallowed by the vast swathes of his memory that are completely blacked out as a result of what he's experienced. Um, yeah, it's the, it's it's a kind of record, and that this song in particular is a kind of thing that I'm hesitant to really talk about because I don't want to dramatize it or in any way kind of paint it as this thing to gawp at. Uh, it, it's a really raw and a really really difficult uh, look at you know uh, what it is like to be traumatized and what it is like to attempt to live in the wake of experiences that are so horrific that you can't even remember them you don't know why you're traumatized fully you know what people have told you about what has happened and you can actualize that into a narrative that you can create in your own mind but it will always be this fiction that is simultaneously separate from you and yet also fully the reason for why you are entirely the way you are and um from that harrowing child kidnapping narrative on that song travis expounds into his current self-loathing and just spiraling in the equally horrific stoop lights and then the rest of the album with a couple of exceptions for moments where he does uh, include vocal snippets and uh, there is a verse as well on the song haze of interference you just have these broken instrumentals that basically are kind of a musical translation of this des desert state inside Travis's fractured and broken brain, basically. These instrumentals that are fundamentally missing a core element of humanity, a kind of barren record of pain, but also of the absence of pain and the absence of emotion altogether. I mean, the, the most definitive representative lyrical moment on the entire album is that refrain at the end of man wearing a helmet where he's just going over and over all the fucking years i just don't remember all the fucking time i just don't remember and you get a sense of what it is like to live in that state it's deeply uncomfortable it is something that i can relate to only in an ephemeral sense um and it is something that by design you project your own traumatic experiences into no matter what they are or if not an outright trauma then the sensation of being fundamentally depressed in a sense that you are your mind is entirely submerged in a state of total emptiness basically and the record just continues across its again very short runtime which is a function of the fact that not much changes because not much changes basically is is how i would summarize this you know it ends feeling empty and inconclusive and i have spent so much time listening to it it is a void of chaos and noise and silence that allows me to project my own terrifying silence onto it yeah it's a heavy thing uh, i debated even talking about it and i've left it to last for that reason it's just 
it's a tough thing but it is a, to try and <laughs> i guess distance take a step back it is a in its own way a beautiful artistic statement a capturing of the power of what music can do in a condensed format and something that should be celebrated for its for the art that it is for the the beauty and the ugliness and the the, the everything that's contained within it hey <laughs> yeah maybe i don't know maybe i shouldn't maybe i maybe i brought this whole mood down too much bringing it up because it's a lot but if i'm to be honest and talk about sub 30 minute albums this is unquestionably the sub 30 minute album i have listened to the most so i have to mention it um it is an artifact and a, and a product of someone who is who i consider to be one of the artistic voices of my generation that i connect to the most and for anyone who needs and relies upon art to provide a canvas for their trauma for their depression or whatever they're going through this is the kind of thing that exists for that purpose and we're grateful that it exists and there will be a lot of people out there who never need it and have no interest in experiencing it and i don't begrudge that at all and i frankly you know that's amazing but there will always be you know there'll be those of us who do need something like this and so yeah i wanted to put it out there all right, that brings us to the end of our discussion of great albums under 30 minutes. I think we have captured a very broad variety of sounds and feelings and things that albums can do with short run times as well, how they can benefit the artists by really forcing them to hone their skills and also how they can benefit the artist by allowing them an opportunity to just focus in on one element of what they do and let that be the full picture so let us know at home what sub 30 minute albums mean the most to you what you look for in a record that short as well what makes it feel like it's enough what makes it feel like it's a full cohesive artistic statement let us know your thoughts in the comments below check out our reviews as well and we will be back again with a new discussion topic same time next week if you enjoyed this video, please consider giving it a like and subscribing to the channel if you have not already. Both those things help us out an awful lot. If you want to go above and beyond and support us directly, you can hit the join button for just $1 a month, support the channel, become a member of the Jams and Tea family, and if you want to recommend us some music to talk about and listen to, but in the other order to what I just said, your recommendation will go to the top of the pile. Until next time though, folks, rock over London, rock on Chicago, bounty, the quicker picker-upper.